This is Father Patrick Briscoe. And this is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. Welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all of you who support us on our Patreon account. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, check it out on our website. Please like, subscribe, and share God's Planning content wherever you listen to your podcast. Father Jacob Bertrand, we are here together on God's Planning. Yes. A podcast which is a project of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Yes. And we are religious. Yes. And this is our day. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is a celebration of the World Day for Consecrated Life. Well, technically, it's a World Day of Prayer for Consecrated Life, which Pope St. John Paul II founded in 1997. That's right. Which is exciting, you know, so we looked up a couple facts about this day. But uh, but we've got skin in the game. You know, we, we decided that we wanted to do an episode on religious life because of this particular feast day. So as we open here at the top of the episode, can you t- walk us through it? Like, what's the connection between religious life or consecrated life and the feast day of February 2nd? The connection between the feast we celebrate today, uh, the Feast of the Presentation, or also called Candle Mass, um, because we bless all of the candles to be used in the particular church uh, for the year to come, unless you run out and then have to bless them again. But there's a blessing at the beginning of Mass for the candles and consecrated life is centered around the what happens at the Feast of the Presentation. So in Jewish law, custom, tradition, the firstborn the, um, would be presented in the temple and offered um, would be offered through another sacrifice. So in, in the case of our Lord, they would present two turtle doves or two pigeons to offer as a sacrifice in memory of, of um, the, the sacrifice or the death of the firstborn at the Exodus. Remember when the, the Israelites... Were, were being led out of Egypt, the final sort of plague was the death of the firstborn. So you have this um, commemoration of that by presenting the firstborn, consecrating the firstborn in the temple, and offering a sacrifice in place of the firstborn. So this is what the Feast of the Presentation is, um, G- Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus to the temple to present him to the priests and to offer sacrifice. And in that, in that moment, we were, were introduced to two particular individual, Simeon and Anna. And Simeon and Anna are two, I guess they're old. Um, Anna, we know Anna spent her almost her entire life in the temple praying and worshiping. Simeon is an old man, um, essentially awaiting the coming of the Messiah. Mm. You know, in prayer, in sacrifice, um, their lives given to the to the presentation, to the coming of the Messiah. And at the feast of the presentation, here he is, in a way. What the, I love this feast at the House of Studies because we did the full procession, right? Yep. So candle mm-hmm. mass, uh, we we did a blessing of candles, and we we typically have the custom of having that blessing take place in our cloister, right? Right. So the mass actually begins outside of the chapel, uh, and the sacristans arrange a, a whole bunch of candles. There's usually a ton of them there, and they do and they do a nice job laying them all out. And the candles are blessed with a special prayer for the feast and with holy water, and then. We, the friars participating in the procession, light candles, right, that we carry into the chapel. Right. And in that way, so it's not only the celebration of the blessing of the candles, right, but the candles that we carry in that way, light is an important part of the feast day, right? So I think, sure. too, you know, not, not only as you're talking about, we've, we have the figures of Simeon and Anna who were, who were consecrated, we might say loosely, right, um, consecrated. Kind of precursors, in a, in a, yeah. yeah. In a, in a way, um, showing forth what it, what it means to be wholly given over to God. But also we have, we have light, the celebration of light, the feast of light. We have all these candles lit. 
And I think that gets at the idea that consecrated men and women or men and women religious, right, are supposed to be lights for the world. Yeah. Um, Every Christian is supposed to be. But a religious is in a more striking way. Uh, You were vocation director, of course, uh, in our province before your new assignment. Now you're a pastor. You're living out this this light bearing in a different way. But as vocation director, uh, what would you tell guys that were considering... The order, or any young young people, you spoke to a lot of young women too, um, about the nature of religious life and this idea of being a light or being a sign. So I think a lot of what I would say is some would be things that I would have repeated that I heard, particularly I think in our novitiate a mm. lot. Um, our our novice master was, um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I kind of laugh there, right? Because you were his vicar for a while after after you were ordained. Um, but a lot of what was instilled in us in the novitiate was that religious life is not about you. Mm. It's about it's about Jesus, and it's about witnessing to Jesus in the world. So everything that a religious does and everything that a religious is, because a vocation is not defined by a function as much it is, as it is defined by a sort of like being something, an ontology, not right. a functionality. Right. So it's when considering what consecrated people are, it's le- it's more important to think of that. What are they rather than what do they do? And one of the things that they are is what we call an eschatological sign or a sign of the end times, but particularly a sign that there's something beyond this life. Hmm. And that's that's what you know you're speaking about with respect to the light, because the light represents Christ, the light of the world, who is, you know, our risen Lord, but who also will come again. So religious stand in this kind of, I don't know, in kind of a, the the gap between this world and the next. Not that we're not part of this world, but what we witness to is something yet to be. You know, so this is why the religious take vows, why they wear a habit, why they live in a particular way. It's all to witness to the reality that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is coming. Mm. Um and the real, the whole structure, and we'll talk about this in a, a little a little bit. Um, the whole structure of religious life is oriented to our Lord's coming, right? Not to life here, right? But to our Lord's coming, right? Yeah, I think that's that's a great point because when people think of the vows, they think of, uh, I think, poverty, chastity, and obedience as disciplines, as impositions, right? Something that's difficult to manage on this side of eternity, and they forget that the reason we live poverty, chastity, and obedience is because that's how life will be then. You know, in marriage, we're, we're neither married nor given in marriage. Right. Um, in heaven, that is, there's the, we're neither married nor, nor given in marriage. Um, in heaven, we're not worried about how much stuff we have because the only thing we need is God. Uh, in heaven, we're conformed perfectly to God's love, so there's no contest between his will and ours. Mm-hmm. Poverty, chastity, obedience then are not just models for life on this side of eternity, but they are already living heaven now. And right. I think I think that gets exactly at what you're just saying and and really important to talk about the vows that way. So let let's dive into them because a lot of people think, oh, priests, um, priests all take vows. And most people, I think, wrongly believe that priests take a vow of poverty. Now, admittedly, uh, there's there's something untoward about a priest who doesn't live simply. Priests should right. live yeah. simply. But there's a difference between the religious vows we take and priestly life in general, but there are other reasons for the vows. So I, w- I wondered if you might lead us through poverty, chastity, and obedience, which are the, the big three, right? That's what every, that's what every religious does. That's uh, right, yeah. And and what, the, what they, uh, maybe the, the reasons behind the vows, are kind of what, what their purpose is, what, what is it that they do to help us, you know, as we're saying, live 
in that in live in heaven already. Right. Yeah. So fundamentally, they're sourced in Christ. Mm. So where do the vows come from? Well, they come from Jesus. You know, Jesus who was poor. We can think of the beginning and end of Jesus's life. Born in a manger, died on a cross. You know, nothing. Both of those times. So our Lord lived a life of poverty. He was poor. Blessed are the poor. You know, this whole, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, this whole thing. Um, our Lord was chaste. He was unmarried. He lived a life not given in marriage, not received in marriage. So that's, that would, you know, but you know, he didn't have children. He lived a life totally dedicated to, to our Lord. He forgave or for, yeah, forgot. The goods of marriage were foregone in our Lord's <laughs> life. There you go. Forwent. Um, forwent the goods of marriage and the goods of, you know, sexuality and, and that sort of thing. And then obedience, the, you know, our Lord was obedient to the father. Mm-hmm. So living those vows, they're imitations. It's an imitation of Christ. And just as you were saying, it's an imitation of what's to come in heaven because it's participation in the divine life. So you see how these are all of a piece. But what the vows do for us, and this is something our Dominican constitution, I haven't read a number, I haven't read any other constitutions of religious communities. So I'm not saying we're the only ones who have it. We might be, I don't know. But one of the things that our constitutions of the order of preachers talk about with respect to the vow of poverty, but I think it can be applied to the other two, is that in taking, in living a life of poverty, we're not giving up bad things. Right. But we're giving up things of what our constitutions say of undoubted value. Right. Because there's a higher good, because there's something better out there than the material goods of this world, however good and comforting they may be. There's something better out there than the goods of family life. And there's something better out there even than my own desires. And that's God. Um, so in living those, we are fixed on pursuing God rather than being distracted even by the best of things, you know? So what does poverty do? Well, in taking a vow of poverty, our desires are freed from the worries of the material world. Think of this example, right? Through poverty, um, I don't have to worry about what I have to buy or bills to pay or these sort of things. It's a voluntary poverty, so it's not to be distracted by it, to focus on what? Contemplation, which is, according to the church, the first thing that ever, the first and primary thing that every religious does Mm. is to contemplate God. Secondly, so we give up things, well, without having a family, I don't have to worry about pursuing those bodily desires or even providing for a wife and children. Not that those are bad, but it frees me from those concerns so as to spend time with God, serve the church. And finally, obedience. Obedience is the highest because it gives up what is most kind of integral to us in, in in this hierarchy of giving up our will. Not that my, all of my desires are corrupt, a lot of them are, but not that all of them are bad, <laughs> but that I would even sacrifice my very self, uh, my very will for God. Right, right. And I think that's symbolized so dramatically when we, when we profess our vows uh, in the Dominican order, right? We make a prostration, we lay down on the ground, mm-hmm. and it's that, it's that clear sign that my life is no longer my own, right. that, it belo- that it belongs to Jesus and it belongs to his church. And there's a great freedom that comes in that. And I think that that's one thing that I, that I wish I could share with people, that I wish they could taste, that I wish they could know, um, is the, the freedom of our life. Because, the, yes, there's a tension, and yes, we have to fight to keep the vows because we're still living uh, in, you know, on the imperfect side of eternity. And in heaven, that tension, <laughs> that tension will go away because we will be in the beatific vision. Um, but they are extraordinary extraordinarily liberating and we have great freedom religious are the freest people that that i have known ever uh on this side of heaven 
And I think that that's I think that that's something that that people doubt, especially if they're discerning religious life. Um, but but other Catholics tend to think of our life as constrained when it's exactly the opposite. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Religious are just free from so much worry. They're free from the burdens of of so many other offices of life, um, and all of that is to allow is to allow there, like you said, to be more room for God to be to be um, first and foremost thinking of him to be contemplatives, right? Yeah, and this is too, you know, the church talks about this kind of handing over. It uses the word holocaust right. to describe the the profession, the consecration, the vows we make, you know, our profession of vows as a, as a holocaust. And it, the reason for that is because if you look at Old Testament uh, sacrifices or sacrifices in the temple, you had different types of sacrifices, right? You could offer a grain sacrifice or, uh, yeah, which would be just grains, you know, that you'd <laughs> give over, and or uh, a bloodied sacrifice where you would offer an animal where some would be would be burnt, some of the blood would be spilled in other places, and sometimes some of the food, or the, the, the meat or the flesh of the animal would be reserved to either feed the poor, the priest, or the, other, the one making the sacrifice. But the highest form of sacrifice was a whole burnt offering, where the entire animal was given over to God, and that's called a Holocaust offering. And that's what the religious does through his or her profession. They give the entirety through poverty, chastity, and obedience, the entirety, entirety of their lives over to God, to the church and to witness, you know, as that sign. And the the sort of, the and in the Benedictine tradition, now we prostrate on the ground, we lay on the ground, but as do other religious, and in the Benedictine tradition, you're probably familiar with this, Father, but the Benedictines, at least at their final, their solemn profession, when they prostrate, a funeral pall, a black funeral pall is laid over them to indicate their death to this world, and when they rise from that, it's lifted, but, just, you know, if you think of what's laid over a coffin, that's a massive, it's really I a massive that. piece so of cloth, cool. yeah. but as they lay, yeah. the funeral pall is laid over them as if they're dead to this world, and they're only given over to God, which is real. it's a powerful thing. You can look it up on Google. You know, they're powerful, powerful pictures. It's beautiful. Now, one thing people are people are frequently asking us about is they're very concerned that they don't know all of the orders of the church. And it's a little bit like memorizing all of the teams of the NFL. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> like, if you can rattle off all of the teams, like, good for you. But you can also love football without doing that. You sure. Know, you need, like, a team to follow and yeah. a local team. And, and a team to hate. And a and team to hate, it. you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and... Um, so if you follow the analogy, we could give you some religious orders to follow and some to hate. No, just kidding. Um, but actually, but just kidding. But Moving actually, <laughs> yeah. so if you if you look at if you look at the life of the church, though, uh, there are many religious orders and their diversity is important. And it comes from, in part, the works that they do and the way uh, their shape of life happens. But I, I think far more than understanding the totality of the list of religious institutes, because I have no idea how many religious communities of pontifical right there are. Pontifical right just means approved by the Pope. I don't know. I you know I have no idea what that list looks like. Sure, it's very long. Yeah, uh, but we can understand some of the basic forms, right? Yeah. So what would what would be like the three main movements of religious life? Yeah, it, it's helpful as you were starting to say. Religious orders are defined um, or distinguished by what we call their charism, their gift to the church. So they kind of specialize in something. So for the order of preachers, the Dominicans were preachers. The Franciscans, you think they're, they, they're devoted to poor and the poor, poverty and the poor. So that's how they're distinguished, kind of specialists in something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even as you're saying, the list of religious communities, I mean, there's probably some list of all of them somewhere, but 
um, religious communities often in the, also in the history of the church come and go. So there are religious communities that don't exist anymore. There are some that are dying now. There are some that are coming to existence. You know, the whole, because it's at the service of the church. So what, how is the spirit moving um, to serve the church? And if we think of it in those terms, like you said, we can identify three kind of epics of of religious life, consecrated life in the church. Now, there have been others in between, but at least for the sake of simplicity, three major movements in the church that have really defined religious life. So the first and the earliest would be monastic life. So you think monks, um, Benedictines, Carthusians, Cistercians, these Trappists, um, these kind of orders of religious uh, religious. And we can identify them, or they're identified by sort of the monastery, by leaving the world and going to the monastery and living a life sort of excluded from the world, self-sustained. You know, they pray and work and pray and work, a very contemplative life in that way. And that kind of came around, you know, the, the probably like the 700, 7th century, 6th century, when that began to take form. Um, as we know it now, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, there was the desert movements before and things that led to it, but as a kind of height of beginning there. As you move through the centuries, you move into the Middle Ages, and you have things that happen, but you have what's called the mendicant movement in the 12th, uh, 12th and 13th century, really. And here you have the orders like the Dominicans, the Franciscans, um, a whole host of other orders, the Carmelites as they're reformed. Um, the mendicants are defined by a sort of monastic observance, but really moved into an urban environment. So again, the Holy Spirit at work as people were moving into urban environments, into the city so too these religious communities to witness, to teach, to care for, you know, people became much more popular. Um, and mendicant is just from the Latin word to beg, mendicare, so they were begging orders. So we didn't have farms, we begged, Dominicans did, whereas the monks farmed. And then if you move forward again to particularly the time of the Protestant Reformation, you have sort of the development of what we could call apostolic societies, right? So these communities... Um, an order here that really defines that are the Jesuits or the Society of Jesus. These communities really dedicated to apostolic work, to going out, to being missionaries, to preaching the gospel. If you look across time, monastic, mendicant, um, apostolic, we could just say, um, you have this balance in different ways between the contemplative and the active life. So lives, lives given to prayer and lives given to the apostolate to work. As you move through that epic, you move from a very contemplative observance, though they worked, but it was very contemplative, to the mendicants, that's more of a mix, to the modern apostolic, we could say, that's much more focused on kind of the active side. So that's, you're never going to memorize the list, but we have the big three, monastic, mendicant, and apostolic, why not? Uh, so the, the, uh, what, what I think is most striking about the monastery, right, is that the word monk, monos, it just means soul, means being alone with God. Right. And there you you have the kind of like distilled, pure seeking of the contemplative life. Like all a monk wants is to be alone with God. Right. Uh, and the community and the participation in community life is there insofar as that's at the service of the pursuit of God alone. And then you end up with the mendicants, right? Like in our tradition, you end up with, with something more mixed because St. Dominic's great innovation was to take the the form of monastic life and say, well, what if we weaponize this basically? Like what if we put this at the service of a particular work of the church, which as you mentioned was preaching. Um, so now, so now with the Dominicans, you have a, you have a mixed life that is both active and contemplative. Right. And then in the modern world, you end up with a life that is more strongly active. I would say that it is contemplative, you know, right. more focused as you're, as you're pointing out on particular works. Uh, when we look at religious life today, um, 
like what what has been some of the what have been some of the things that you've seen in the United States? What are what 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 congregate what are congregations marked by? What are young people looking for when they when they look at religious life? Like what what have you noticed? Where are we at? That's a good question. I think in some ways we're we're at a time with you know with religious with priests where numbers are down across generally across the board. So it's it's not I wouldn't say we're in a sort of flourishing moment. We're not at the height of religious life as far as numbers go in the church's history. Um, but I also I also think that that that's at in the you know, US anyway compared yeah. to 1950. <laughs> sure, exactly. Yeah. But that's also at the hand of the Holy Spirit. You know, the church provides the, or the Holy Spirit provides for the church is what you know. So I don't look at that as a sort of despairing reality. It's just where we are in the church. Um, but I think like in every time, there, what is attractive about religious life or where religious life, whether it's in one of monastic, mendicant, apostolic, whatever pocket that might be in, what what is where religious life is healthy. And I don't always like the word flourishing because that often associates numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but where yeah. religious life is healthy, and I think this is not true just today, but has always been true, is is where there's sanctity to be pursued. Mm. Um, where you can look at a community and say, um, and identify like, yeah, there's there's holiness at work here. Maybe not perfection yeah, because yeah, there's yeah. no perfect yeah. religious yes, community, but yes. there this is a place where I can be holy in this, where I can learn to be holy, be formed into a school of holiness. And there are some external factors to that. Like if you were just to look at numbers, like religious communities that are getting vocations are those that are, and, and healthy are those that are um, ha- are either faithful to the charism of the founder or have reinvigorated that faithfulness right, right. Um, in their observance and what they wear in their habit and how they dress and how they present themselves to the world um, and how they serve the church and their fidelity to the magisterium and to the church. And that makes sense, right? Because if a young person wants to give their life to something holy, a holocaust, a whole burnt offering, you don't want to do that in half measures. Right. You know? Right. So that looks very different for Dominicans. That looks very different for other mendicants. That looks different for monastics. That looks different in apostolic orders in that kind of way. Though there are, I think, those things, a few things that I identified, fidelity to the founder and the charism, the sort of witness as we began at the top of the episode, the eschatological reality of the witness of religious life, um, the the sort of the trust in the tradition, like that's such a big part of of religious life, the tradition of the of the community of the order, and you know that's one of the things we're blessed with being over eight hundred years old. You know that's not to say that new orders are inherently bad or that kind of thing, but one of the things I love about our order is that we have this eight hundred year tradition of like serving the church and making saints. So. There's you can trust that you know it's if it fails it's not the order it's me <laughs> so yeah I really appreciate what you said about identity um, about these religious institutes and 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 really groups that have leaned into their charism into the grace of their founder into their own particular traditions I, I would echo that I would say the, say places that I've seen reinvigorated lately are places that know clearly who they are and what right. they're about yeah because when religious when religious when we lose our flavor. When we lose what it is that sets us apart, then it really becomes mush. You know, if you can't tell who an institute well, why bother is, at that the, point, yeah, yeah, because of the holiness of its founder or because of its particular traditions, then you just say, well, why this thing rather than another? And if I don't have a clear answer to that, then you know, that, why thus, would I give my life to that? <laughs> yes, yeah. it goes. Um, so February second again is World Day of Prayer for Consecrated Life. 
So as we wrap up this episode, you know, I would encourage our listeners to pray for, uh, to pray for not just an increase of vocations, but for religious, that we would be faithful to our charisms, faithful to our founders, faithful to our apostolic work, that we would be invigorated, right? That we could discover with a kind of renewed zeal, that special mandate we have for the gospel. Uh, so that that would be my that would be my wish today. Any last thoughts on religious life from you, Father? I don't. Th- I think. Well, yeah. I was going to say I don't think so, but yes, I think you know to to pray for religious and this day of prayer for consecrated life. But yeah, to pray for a revival in the church um, as as the Holy Spirit Spirit deems fit. But if there, it's the same thing with priesthood. But religious life, if we aren't cultivating uh, our homes and our parishes to be places to foster vocations, they're just not going to come. So pray for that, work for that, and um, yeah, let the Holy Spirit work. If you'd like an introduction to Christian spirituality, I would recommend Father Jordan Alman's book. Mm-hmm. He's a Dominican friar that taught for a long time at the Angelicum, and he introduces different spiritual traditions, different uh, traditions of religious orders there. It's a fabulous introduction. Um, so that would be a great place to start. Do you have a recommendation? Um, I, I think Vita Consecrata by John Paul II, his encyclical on consecrated life. It's long, but it's it's sort of the, it is the 20th century document on religious life and it's where it's where the church through through john paul ii encourages those markers of healthy religious communities so religious communities to to re what regrasp the charism the graces of the founder to be those signs those witnesses to 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 the world um it's it's really the whole theology of of religious life of consecrated life um in in that too so i think that's a, a great read fabulous Well, thanks to all of you who support us on Patreon. We're very grateful. Your donations to us allow us to undertake all of this work. If you haven't already, please like, subscribe, and share episodes of the podcast from whatever platforms you're on on social media or from whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Giving us a five-star rating and a review really helps other users to find other listeners to find the podcast where they can learn about things like religious life. (laughs) Please note that since we're religious, we're praying for you and we ask your prayers for us. God bless.